0: Welcome to the Bards FM Podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to Ukraine with Nicholas Papa Nikolau. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil tempts not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war.
1: Ukraine is to Russia what New England is to America it is inconceivable. I mean, how would we feel if new England had somehow declared that it's independence? you know, the, 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 six new England States and, you know, some 30 years ago, and then an enemy or somebody that we perceived as an enemy was actually trying to wrest them away from us and putting, you know, as you say, you know, microbiology labs in and, uh, thinking of you know making them uh, the New England states be part of the Warsaw Pact, etc. We wouldn't suffer that for long. That he has been a tremendous supporter of family values, uh, of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. Uh, you know, I was in Russia. I was there when, as soon as the Soviet system fell. But I remember that two or three years into it, so we're talking around 93, 94, he actually forbade. Uh, anything that was related to Soros, uh, any organization that was related to Soros to operate in Russia.
0: Well, patriots, tonight we have a very powerful interview from Nicholas Papa Nikolaou, who is Greek and has dealt with some of the most some of the highest levels of state that anybody can, and the diplomats around the world. He's been awarded numerous awards. The highest award that's awarded in Russia, including some very high awards in Ukraine. So I think that tonight we're going to gain a very good perspective on at least the context of this conflict, and which will hopefully provide enough filtering going forward that people won't be deceived by the incessant barrage of propaganda that's coming out of the West, in particular, driven by our CIA. and. The same type of propaganda that's coming out of the Zelensky group that President Zelensky, who is surrounded by, yeah, neo-Nazis, what can you say? The same group we stood up, the same group we've been funding for five plus billion dollars, the same group that John McCain helped get there, the same group that we armed with weapons to kill innocent civilians. So I think you will get a pretty good perspective tonight. On What is going on and of course they've got the hand puppet Sean Penn on the ground trying to tell the story which is going to be completely made up and that's because Ukraine is so much is so much to show if it is exposed what's going on in Ukraine the entire global deep state system is at risk so you can figure there's something pretty nasty there they're trying to hide. Before we begin tonight, MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com forward slash Bards is the Bards Nation landing page. It's a fantastic page, thanks to all you great patriots, and it's a fantastic honor to have that page. And of course, MyPillow is led by one of America's great patriot CEOs and Christian, Mike Lindell. There's a brief message from Mike Lindell.
2: Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, CEO of MyPillow. Retailers, shopping channels, and now even banks have tried to cancel myself and my pillow. Well, during these times, your support has meant everything to us. So my employees and I want to personally thank each and every one of you by passing the savings directly onto you. We're selling the best products ever for the best prices ever. For example, we have my standard size Pillow regularly $69.98, now only $19.98 with your promo code. Or you can get custom fit with my premium queen size my pillows, regularly $79.98, now just $29.98. Or my king size regular $89.98, now just $34.98. So go to MyPillow.com now and use the promo code on your screen or call the 1-800 number below to receive this exclusive offer. If you do it right now, I'm going to include a free gift with your purchase. Thank you, and God bless.
0: And that's MyPillow.com forward slash Bards. Your promo code is Bards, B-A-R-D-S. You can use that promo code anywhere on the Frank Speech site, the My Store site, and the pillow site. Also, the Founders Bible, thefoundersbible.com. That's the Bible for our time at NASB 1995 edition with our Founders documents worked throughout the Scripture. It's an amazing lesson in God's Word and in how our founding fathers used Scripture as a living language. If you use your Bards code, B-A-R-D-S, in the coupon section, you'll get 20% off on these heirloom-quality Bibles that are printed in the United States. So that's thefoundersbible.com, promo code Bards. Finally, Expedition, X-P-E-D, expeditioncoffee.com. That's the coffee for the warrior of our times, the coffee designed to give you that boost of energy and sustained mental focus across the entire day. This coffee was developed in part by Dr. Eric Naputi. Expedition Coffee is also part of a whole health ecosystem, which other products on that site include the Gut Health Triad, which helps heal and seal your gut. Leaky gut is one of the critical issues of our health overall. It's something we need to address, and the Gut Health Triad begins that process to allow your body to naturally heal that. Also, Immune XP. Immune XP is an immune booster based on pine cone extract with high levels of vitamin C. It's a fantastic additive for your day. And then we have earth. Earth is a full body nutrient powder. Mix it with water. Drink it like a shake once a day. It's all the nutrient base your body needs. And finally, Pure, X, Pure 47. Pure 47 is one of the most refined silver extracts currently on the market. A must have for your medical cabinet. It literally has the ability to isolate critical pathogens to keep your body safe, especially in this stressful and bioweapon-driven environment we are currently in. All of these work together to help ensure that you'll reclaim your full body health and your body sovereignty to keep you out of some of these death camps that they call hospitals. So again, Expedition, X-P-E-D, ExpeditionCoffee.com. So, Patriots, this is going to be a good, solid interview and foundation to look at Ukraine. Take close atten- Pay close attention to all that's shared here. Ukraine is an evolving situation. There's been continuing levels of propaganda, and then there was some big news that broke today that is, again, documents that are establishing that our CIA has been covering state secrets with pedophiles. So they go after the pedophiles, and then the pedophiles do nasty jobs, and they, they're using pedophilia for all sorts of other things, and there's, they're covering it all under state secrets. So... This is a sickness that we have in our system. And unfortunately, we, we're going to have to make a stand as Americans to decide if we want a country as Americans or we want a country that the rest of the world wants to get rid of. And we have to find the pride in our country to get rid of this despicable level of dirtbaggery that's in here. I, I just I don't even have the words for it. And as I mentioned earlier today in the, in the bended knee program, Though this is not confirmed yet, there are reports coming out that Putin has and his special operations group, which is Spetnaz, have found child sex trafficking dens, and they're going after those. And if there was ever any doubt, if we had bioweapons labs, as they try to kind of act like we don't have bioweapons labs, the U.S. sent out an idle threat today to Russia with this headline head of the the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, nice little piece there, love the title, Who is led, which is led by Robert Pope, another nice name, warns that the U.S.'s network of Pentagon-run biolabs in Ukraine could unleash deadly pathogens if hit by Russian forces. I doubt that has anything to do with safety and probably much more about a doomsday switch that they're ready to actuate to prevent Russians from discovering how bad of the work is that we were doing over there. The biggest question every single American needs to be asking right now is, what are we doing with bioweapons labs in Ukraine? That's just fundamentally that question. And I can answer some of it because they keep exporting it over to places where there are no rules to limit these sorts of things like gain-of-function research. But the biggest issue is, and ask yourself this over and over, how is it that the Pentagon, Department of Defense, NIH, using various cutouts, and that's the term in the, in the CIA, that's a cutout company, it means it's a company working for them but it's acting like it's not. How are they using these cutouts to siphon money and to go to Wuhan lab and to go to Ukraine and probably many more places to develop these viruses and why? That's the question. Because there's no, there is no functional, <laughs> to use their term, threat reduction by putting bioweapons labs in anybody's country. These people are sick. And they are using that same method against us, against the people, both with the aerial spraying that we're getting. They're using it with the injections they're putting into people. Don't think that these people are going to stop until we stop them. And this is our taxpayer money funding this. So just keep all that in context tonight. I'll say it. You'll hear it on the interview. I'm going to say it tonight once again. For those of you dialed up about Putin, President Putin, and listening to all this garbage coming out of the media, let me assure you, the Russians and the Americans would make the greatest alliance in history if we could get past the media Truthfully, get past the media. Russians and Americans would be the best friends ever. And I will say this before the interview then President Putin is welcome on this show anytime he would like to come on. That is an extended offer. So he is welcome to come on, as is Donald Trump. President Trump is welcome to come on, but President Putin is welcome to come on this show any day he'd like to come on. So that is said. All right, Patriots. 51 minutes or so of a great interview. I think you will enjoy this a great discussion with a very brilliant man and who's had an amazing amount of experience and a lot of insight. So here we go. Well, Patriots, I want to welcome today a very distinguished guest. And I will tell you I'm humbled by this man who I've just recently been introduced to. His name is Nicholas Papanikolaou. He's Greek by origin, but has interacted with some of the biggest heads of state in the world. Nicholas is the recipient of the Grand Cross of St. Andrews of Russia, which was given to him by an organization called the Glory of Russia Foundation. President Putin of Russia was also received the same award. Nicholas is also the recipient of the Gold Star of the Ukraine, Uh, which was the symbol of the Ukraine is the owl and is considered a major general in the Ukraine rescue service. So Nicholas, welcome to the show. I'm very humbled. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you. It it makes me feel a little bit whether you're talking about me or somebody else. (laughs) Thank you. These things that you mentioned, Scott, are, you know, by the grace of God and I'm a believer. So a person of faith. So I think that, uh, you know, I'd like
0: to give credit to him for where he's taken me in my life. That's beautiful. And I can totally relate. It's uh, Nicholas, let's start with a little bit just about your background. And I'm fascinated. You, you are, you've traveled the world and as a person has also traveled the world, but you've interacted at levels of state that are stunning. Tell us a little bit about that and just kind of give us some context about yourself.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, you know, uh, to answer the first part of your question, yeah, I'm Greek. I, you know, I, I graduated from Harvard with a degree in economics and then uh, I have an MBA from Columbia and I also have uh, a doctorate uh, uh, in uh, uh, divinity, uh, which I earned later in my life. Uh, and um, But I think the, the, the best way by way of, you know, introducing me and why I have, some experience with this is that in 2002, I co-founded with two other gentlemen, an NGO, which is called the world public forum, uh, quote, dialogue of civilizations, unquote. Uh, and I, I co-founded it with somebody called Vladimir zakunin uh, who is Russian and who is a four star general of the KGB and was also Chairman of the of the uh, Russian State Railways, which is the biggest company in Russia, they, they employ 1.3 million people, and he is presently head of the international department at uh, Moscow State University, which is their Harvard. It's the equivalent of their Harvard. So I co-founded it with him and with an Indian gentleman whose last name was Kapoor K A P U R Kapoor, and uh, we bring together uh, for a five day. Conference uh, uh, once a year, uh, about 600, uh, VIPs by invitation only. You, you, you cannot just turn up at the forum. Uh, we bring them together on the island of Rhodes in Greece. Uh, and, uh, more than 60 countries are represented there, uh, from, you know, China to Russia, to all the European countries, to African countries, uh, Latin American countries and so forth. And uh, the, the guests uh, include, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they include uh, uh, two or three prime ministers, usually uh, one or two heads of state, uh, government ministers, university professors, and people from, from uh, the academic world, and also top religious leaders from every major faith. So there will always be there, uh, Orthodox archbishops and uh, cardinals and patriarchs and chief rabbis and chief muftis, et cetera. And the idea is to put all of these people together, uh, in a, you know, a civilized, uh, 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 atmosphere to get them, to talk about interreligious and intercultural issues. Uh, and, and so it's, it, it's intended to allow people to express themselves, to try to find, you know, common ground, and we exclude the press from the deliberations inside the NGO, the, the, uh, the forum, uh, because, you know, if the press is there and somebody's a political person, they might be reluctant to admit or to say something. Uh, so we exclude the press, but we just, uh, the press does hang around at the fringes of the forum, but we give them statements. So the statement has been elaborated by, by our committee um, uh, before it goes out and uh, the, the forum also uh, we've held sessions at unesco headquarters in paris uh, on occasion and at other uh, venues but the main venue is on the island of rhodes uh, in greece um uh, every september so that has given me an opportunity to have uh time some serious time with some heads of state etc and and try to figure out for myself uh and form a personal opinion as to what they stand for, what they really as aspire to, et cetera. Uh, and it's, be, it's been very informative for me, very educational.
0: So tell us a little bit about this award you received from, you know, from Russia. I mean, I'm fascinated by this because you had mentioned that very few people, I think you only said about 15 or 16 people, have received the award, including President Putin.
1: Yes, this is, a, this is awarded by the glory of Russia Foundation which is, uh, it, it's a, it's an organization that, uh, uh, Putin supported and, and formed, uh, to remind people, because, you know, if you were Russian, there were 70 years of a sort of, a you know, a blank out where, you know, you, 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 many people were sort of pushed to be like animals and, you know, uh, tell the authorities about their brother and their father uh and so P- putin wanted to remind russians of their own history their culture etcetera because the truth is that russia you know and russians are tremendously talented from their uh, ballet to their uh, you know uh, composers you know musical composers to their authors like you know dostoevsky and you name it uh, to their uh, painters uh, it, it, it's a, it's a country with a rich cultural heritage, uh, and, uh, also with a rich historical, uh, heritage, uh, suffice it to say that, uh, where the, we here in the United States struggled through five years of war and untold suffering and killings to, uh, eliminate slavery, uh, in Russia, it was eliminated with, well, without one drop of blood being spilled by Emperor Alexander II. So. Um, the, the Glory of Russia Foundation was established to remind Russians of their rich heritage. And in the process, uh, Putin also gave it the right to award what in imperial times had been the highest decoration of the land, which was the, the Grand Cross of St. Andrew. Um, and so uh, the chairman of the uh, Glory of Russia Foundation has the right to award that distinction and uh, it has been awarded to 15 or 17 heads of state, prime ministers, including to Putin himself. And I was honored by them to to be a recipient also, though I've never been a president or a prime minister. So it was, uh, it was quite a distinction. It, uh, the decoration itself, what they call the starburst is a, and it looks like a starburst that you wear on your chest, uh, has the double-headed eagle of Russia, in the middle. So it, 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 went back to the Imperial insignia. And, uh, the, the decoration itself has 283 diamonds on it, real diamonds. So, you know, Russians do things in a grand way, uh, and in the top quality way when they really want to, you know, uh, honor, or, or express something. So yes, I, I, I received that.
0: That's very amazing. Well you mentioned Russian writers and actually one of my favorite is, uh, Mikhail Lermontov. Mm -hmm. And I just find these times that we're in right now, one of his great quotes was, uh, many a calm river begins as a turbulent waterfall, yet none hurdles or foams all the way to the sea. It seems very appropriate for the world that we're in right now. Now, that leads us kind of to a bit of Ukraine, because obviously that's pressing on the issue. But before we get there, I'm very intrigued by these awards you've also received from the Ukrainian government. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, uh, I I, I serve as um, the leader of uh, what is probably the the oldest uh, Christian order, lay and religious order in the world, which is called the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem. Uh, People colloquially call it Knights of Malta. Uh, There are several orders that kind of share that name, including one that is under the Vatican, but it is open only to Catholics, and therefore it is not True to the spirit of the original order, which was Christian ecumenical, I'm the head of the ecumenical order. So, uh, in that capacity, I was contacted—must um, uh, be about uh, around 2009, 2010—by uh, the knights that we have in the Ukraine, uh, in our Ukraine chapter. And there was, uh, at the time, there was a uh, uh, really uh, deadly uh, flu bug that uh, had unleashed itself on the Ukraine and people were, were dropping off left and right. So they called me and they said, please, you know, is there something that your organization can do to help with this? And so what we did is we put together containers full of vaccines that we we purchased in America and we uh, we operated them over there. Uh, I think something like 300,000 vaccines or so, something like that. And uh, uh, they, they immediately went to work with that. And I remember that they were calling me uh, uh, crying uh, to say thank you. And at any rate, uh, this came to the attention of the, of the larger uh, Ukrainian government. And so I was awarded the gold star of the Ukraine, uh, which is you know uh, one of their top decorations. And at the same time, the national rescue service which is headed by a lieutenant general of the uh, Ukrainian army and is there to uh, for rescue operations emergencies etc um uh, awarded me uh, uh it includes the police by the way uh they made me an, a, a major general of the Ukrainian police and uh, they then accredited me to interpol so uh for life so, I am a general of Interpol under the Ukrainian chapter for life. And that was their way of saying thank you for the humanitarian work that we did in the Ukraine at that time.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So, the current situation is obviously very fluid and it's very complex in what we're seeing in Ukraine. A lot of the problem that people in the West have. Is a lack of knowledge or understanding of Russian history and its relationship to Ukraine and Kiev. Can you shed some light on that, Sam Nicholas?
1: Well, uh, you know, and that unfortunately is the same problem that that has uh, uh, characterized the the actions. You know, a complete lack of wisdom in uh, 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 in our foreign policy establishment. Uh, with the the tragic results that we see today, because this situation, this war that we see today was entirely avoidable. If we in the States had been, and our foreign policy establishment uh, had been wiser and more knowledgeable of the history. So to make an analogy here, well, first of all, let's look at the history. Moscow, which is the center of the Russian world today, wasn't founded until I think 1140 AD. But the history of Russia goes way back before that, when Russia became Christian, which was around nine eighty three AD. There was no Moscow. The center of the Russian world was Kiev. It was the Ukraine. Uh Tsar Vladimir, who subsequently became Saint Vladimir in the Orthodox Church, was the Tsar at the time and he was in touch with the Byzantine Emperor at the time, Basil II, Second, and uh he was tired of the of the um Uh, polytheism and, uh, uh, you know, all all these weird religions that existed across his kingdom. So he formed a delegation that he sent to the Vatican. He sent to Constantinople, which was the seat of the uh, uh, Byzantine Empire. Today it's called Istanbul. And so he studied the matter and he made a very studied decision that his kingdom was going to be converted to Orthodox Christianity. That was in 983 A.D. And so the center of Christianity of, uh, and of orthodoxy, for that matter, in the Russian world starts with Kiev. So try to think of Kiev. Uh, Kiev is to Russia what New England is to America. When you think of the pilgrims, when you think of the cultural origins of, of, of our republic, the American republic, you have got to be thinking of New England. Now, imagine a scenario where somehow the New England states had torn themselves away from the rest of the Union uh, of the United States. And having torn themselves away, there was a foreign power or powers that we viewed as inimical to us, trying to wrest them away from us, trying to establish, you know, to put missiles right there in New England trying to establish, uh, you know, microbiology labs and what have you. Well, we would not take too kindly to that. In fact, we as Americans spoke our piece in December of 1823, when President Monroe promulgated the Monroe Doctrine. And what did the doctrine say? It said, no foreign power gets to mess around and play games in our hemisphere, not just North America, our entire hemisphere, North and South America. And we have pretty much enforced that, as we did, for example, in 1962, when Castro was, you all remember the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, was trying to put missiles in Cuba. And what did we do? We, we declared a naval blockade uh, of Cuba. Nothing went in or out without our approval until they dropped that. So that's how we asserted our right to control our immediate neighborhood, our environment, and in fact, our not so immediate in, uh, neighborhood too, because we included uh, uh, South America in that, in the Monroe Doctrine. So now, let's go to modern times and what happened with the fall of the Soviet system. Ukraine split away from Russia because all the, the, uh, 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 the Soviet system was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. One of those Soviet socialist republics was Russia. Another one was the Ukraine. So the Ukraine split away from them. And of course they wanted advancement. Uh, They wanted a better life. They wanted all the goods and the kind of economy and freedoms that we enjoy uh, in the West. So from between 1990 and 2014, Ukraine was, it was a very delicate mission where, the presidency of a country uh, went back and forth between a pro-Russian and then a pro-Western, and then a pro-Russian and then a pro-Western president. And in the process of of that delicate balancing act, Ukraine actually started to enjoy a much improved economy. Uh, Ukraine is, by the way, very rich in natural resources. It wasn't only the breadbasket of Europe, in, in imperial times, you know, up until the time of Bolshevism, Europe was fed from the wheat that came from the Ukrainian uh, plains. And then, of course, communism came along, they destroyed their own agriculture, and uh, Soviet Russia turned into the biggest importer of, of grains. But with the fall of the Soviet system, Ukraine went back to doing what it used to do. Uh, it's a very strong agricultural country, and it also is very rich in other natural resources. So I want to come back to this Delicate Balancing Act. The Delicate Balancing Act was very beneficial for Ukraine. It didn't become a, a member of NATO, but it was, uh, it was leaning pro-West with one president, pro-Russia with the other. Russia suffered the existence of a pro-Western president until, you know, the next pro-Russian president came along. But then, as I said, it, it switched back to a, a, a pro-Western. So it was a delicate balancing act that inured to the tremendous benefit of the Ukraine. But then what happened? In 2014, very, very unwisely, the Obama administration upset that balance. Uh, There was an Assistant Secretary of State at the time whose name is Victoria Nuland, N-U-L-A-N-D. And in December, as I recall, of 2013, At the time, the the presidency of the Ukraine was was pro-Russian. And she makes a speech where she publicly acknowledges in December of 2013, she said, we have spent, I think she said, $2 billion to bring down that government. And she said it publicly. So the Obama administration admitted that it was spending billions of dollars to bring down the duly elected government of the Ukraine. Well, of course Putin Putin took exception to that. Of course it was like poking the Russian bear in the eye. So what did he do? A few months later, he invaded the Crimea. We caused it with our unwise, stupid foreign policy. Now, I tend to look at Russia from the point of view of what are the two biggest enemies and problems that we have as Americans. And my answer to that is China and Islam. Russia should have been, if we if we had any brains about it, it should have been made our natural ally in this fight. And instead, the Obama administration brought down their government. Victoria Nuland tried to imagine this as an acting uh, 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 assistant secretary of state flew over to Kiev and participated in street demonstrations, what they called the orange revolution to bring down that duly elected government. All we had to do was wait for the ne- next election in the Ukraine, which would probably bring a pro Western president as had been the case between 1990 and 2014. But no, 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 we had to go and interfere. And so she actually, as serving, Assistant Secretary of State, was on the streets in Kiev, participating in the Orange Revolution. And we brought the government down at the time. And it was a duly elected government. So, of course, Mr. Putin was angry. And his answer was to take the Crimea. So my question is, if you're going to start poking the Russian bear in the eye, Should you not also in advance be thinking of what the consequences are? Should you not in advance be thinking, well, wait a minute, if the Russian bear takes issue with what I'm doing and they react in a violent way, am I in a position, am I willing to defend the stupid act that I've committed with troops? No, I'm not. So then why do it in the first place? So that is what we did in 2014. And I challenge anybody to look up these names that I'm mentioning to you in these facts, and you will see that I'm right. This is what happened. So since 2014, and uh, by the way, it wasn't as though Putin didn't want to, to uh, put Ukraine back under uh, a union with Russia. Of course he did, because I come back to the analogy that I gave you before Ukraine is to Russia what the new England states are to us. If those New England states had been separated from us because of politics, the world politics, whatever you want to call it, of course, our leaders would have a natural aspiration to draw them back into our union. It's just a natural thing. But we gave him the excuse. And so first he invaded uh, uh, Crimea and took it. And of course, the other fact, which is a plain truth that must be admitted here, is that. He has had this plan for a long time. But here's the question. During four years of Trump's presidency, did he dare do something like that? No. Why? Because of the force of Trump. Because he was afraid. But then comes President Biden and all the unwise Democrat foreign policy establishment that we see now, and Putin recalculates. And he figures, well, you know, maybe now I can get away with it. And so here we are, ladies and gentlemen, today in a tragedy. Essentially, the the Ukrainians, they're Russians. It's like trying to distinguish a a New Englander and uh, let's say somebody from Maine and trying to say, well, you know, he's not American. He's from Maine. Well, they're Russians. They speak the same language. Ukrainian is just a dialect of, of Russian. So for example, in Russian, you say the name Vladimir. In Ukrainian, you say Volodymyr. It's the same language. It's the same people. It's the same religion. So four years of Trump, he didn't dare do this.
0: I'd like to dig into a little bit of your perception on President Putin. I just want to lay down kind of a context first. And I'd like to go back to Peter the Great, which not only was brought to Christ through William Penn, but was also instrumental in kicking out European industrial interests, and then if we look at say the glimpse of where Russia was in 1790, a great book of this is "The Journey from St. Petersburg to Moscow" by Alexander Radishchev. It accounted and took the account of the massive level of peasant class, which at that point was anywhere from 90 to 95 percent of the population was an illiterate peasant class. And then we see, as the Tsarist system begins to kind of degrade a bit and reforms come in just shortly before the Bolsheviks took control in 1917, which was all backed by German operations, we end up with a president today who has that history behind him, very well aware of what Russia went through at the hands of foreign-controlled interests. Russia suffered the loss of tens of millions of people from World War II through the scourge of Stalin. And we have a president today that most people don't even realize has built more churches, has increased the citizen buying power in his country by seven times. He's developed a middle class that never existed before. And he's not on the Rothschild's banking system. So in while he is a, as I think you would agree, he's a Russian patriot, and he has de- definitely, historically, Russia is not an expansionist nation, but it definitely wants its safety and always builds a safety perimeter around it. Let's put that in context, if you would, from how you understand the man and what you're seeing today.
1: Uh, sure. Look, he, he is a powerful personality, first of all. And uh, he's also a patriot, and he's also very much an orthodox Christian. Uh, but, you know, those are compartments, they're separate compartments of his personality. Um, and you know, you can't say, well, you know, if he's a Christian, how could he be attacking, you know, the Ukraine now? Because his point of view is different. His point of view is this is ours. We're just taking it back. It's ours. And we allowed, as I said before, with our foreign policy mistakes, we allowed this to happen when we could have continued. Maintaining that delicate balance for the benefit of Ukraine and actually for everybody's benefit. So yes, to answer your, your point, uh, let's, let's talk about the churches. First of all, he completely revitalized the Russian Orthodox church. Uh, uh, I'll give you one example of that. There was a famous cathedral at the edge of the uh, Kremlin in Moscow, which uh, Stalin had dynamited and completely destroyed. And Putin comes along, uh, remember that he became President Putin in, in, in early 2000, in the year 2000. He comes along and he says, we are going to rebuild this church. The church everybody remembered from Imperial times was a magnificent church, enormous, all done in gold inside, just incredible, with something like three uh, sub-basement floors, you know, with banquet halls and meeting rooms, and I mean, just an, an incredible edifice. So. Putin goes, uh, calls for bids for an exact replica of the church to be built. And the bids that came in initially from their own construction companies were for something like between two and $300 million equivalent. And uh, Putin calls them in and he says, okay, I know who the low bidder is here, but there's one thing missing here that I want to make clear now. This church has to be completely built in 18 months. Normally, as we know from European history, cathedrals like like cathedrals like that take decades to build. And so he made it an absolute requirement that this cathedral had to be built in 18 months. It was built in 18 months at a cost of $800 million, but he did it. So he feels very strongly he's a Russian patriot, he's an Orthodox Christian, and I'm sure that in his mind, with what is happening in the Ukraine now, he is just thinking I'm taking something back that belongs to me.
0: That makes perfect sense. And I think that's deeply insightful. Now, have you had any interactions directly with president Putin yourself? Nicholas.
1: Yeah, I've, I've met him. Uh, there was a time in, in uh, 2004 where um, I received a uh, phone call from my, uh, 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 uh fr- from the Russian members of our, uh, world public forum committee. And they told me the president has ordered that the holy Light uh, be brought up from Jerusalem to, uh, to Moscow. For those of, of our listeners who don't know, uh, the holy light is, is a miracle that happens every year at Orthodox Easter. Uh, in the uh, 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 Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, where on Saturday, good Saturday afternoon, the faithful come in. Uh, on that particular day, the Israeli police allows 100,000 people to go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So you're packed in like sardines. And so the faithful go in and uh, with unlit candles, and then the, the Orthodox patriarch of Jerusalem comes in, and he uh, disrobes, so he's down to just a tunic, and then he descends into this little chapel that, was, that is a chapel that exists within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which is, that, that chapel, chapel was built allegedly over where <laughs> the holy grave of Jesus was. And so he descends into that little chapel with two very big candles, unlit, and all the faithful that are in the church bring candles that are unlit. And in the early afternoon, mid-afternoon of uh, Good Saturday, this miracle happens every year where there's something like uh, this, this lightning that comes into the church or the Holy Sepulchre, but the lightning travels horizontally and vertically and diagonally in every which direction, and it lights people's candles. And uh, I was there. I witnessed th- th- this miracle myself uh, in 2005. And uh, when the light uh, w- when the candle is lit, the flame for the first four or five minutes is actually white and it doesn't burn. So you'll see the faithful in the church, uh, they say that they're bathing their their face in the holy light, and they'll put the, the flame under their chin, and it won't burn. And four to five minutes later, the flame turns yellow and it burns. So it's a miracle. Um, I was there and I actually photographed it and I, I have the photograph. So in 2004, president Putin ordered that the holy light be brought from Jerusalem to Moscow. And then from Moscow, if he wanted to, if he wanted the holy light to flame out, uh, uh to all, all of Russia all over. So, Every year he sends the presidential plane with at least one of the uh, heads, uh, one of the joint chiefs, the Minister of Culture, uh, uh, three or four uh, archbishops of the Orthodox Church, sometimes also the Patriarch of Moscow, uh, to receive the Holy Light. And so in 2004, which was the first year that they did it, I was called by my associates uh, at the World Public Forum and I was told, uh, the president has ordered that the Holy Light be brought to to uh, Moscow and uh, we have a problem. We don't know how to transport it. Can you help us? So I said, yes, I think I can help you. So I put the phone down. And if you all remember, 2004 was the year of the Olympics in Athens. And I called the head of the uh, uh, Athens Committee, the Athens Olympic Committee. And I said, tell me something. How do you transport the Olympic flame?" from Olympia in Greece to all over the world. By what means do you transport it? So they told me, well, you know, there was a, a, a mining supplies company in the United States that made what we thought was the, mo- the safest and the most efficient lamp uh, that uh, is not a fire hazard, but also if, uh, you know, a breeze or a wind blows, it doesn't, you know, the flame doesn't go out. And that's how we transport it. And so I said, well, how many of those do you have? And they said, we have seven. And so I said, well, seven is a big number. Would you sell me two? And they said, no, Mr. Papa Nicola, we're sorry, but you know we have to keep them because the model is out of production now. So I said, well, would you loan me two? They said, no, we're sorry, we can't do that either. So I said, well, how can I get them? So they said, well, the only thing we can do is we can give you the telephone number for a mining supplies warehouse company in West Virginia, which is where we got them. So they gave me the number, I put down the phone, I picked it up again, and I called that number in West Virginia. And I got, uh, you know, a typical clerk of a store (laughs) in West Virginia with, uh, you know, a West Virginia accent. And so I had the model number and I said, uh, I'm looking for this lamp, would you have any? So he says, well, hold on for a second. And he disappeared. And so uh, I was waiting on the phone for about five minutes. And then he comes back. And he says, I've got two brand new ones in the box. So I gave him my, my credit card. This was completely a God thing. I gave him my credit card and he shipped them to me, and then I shipped them to Russia. And that's how they started to get the Holy Light from Jerusalem to Moscow. So that was in 2004. In 2005, I actually went to Jer- Jerusalem with the Russian delegation to receive the, uh, the Holy Flame. And it was really quite an experience, first of all, because you see a miracle happen right in front of your eyes and uh, secondly i took the presidential plane back from tel aviv to moscow and i remember we arrived at about 11 p.m. that night and uh, putin had actually ordered the uh, the uh, the um, roads sealed off uh, for, for our you know group of cars and we drove directly to the cathedral that I mentioned to you before that was rebuilt at a cost of $800 million. And when we entered the cathedral, uh, I, I knew faces and people in, in the Russian world. And I can tell you that it was like, uh, if you were to walk in at the state of the union message in America, anybody who was anybody in Russia was there. The joint chiefs were there. The council of ministers were there. All the archbishops of the Russian Church were there. Uh, Putin himself was there, and so they put me in a position of honor. And so I was standing about twenty feet away uh, from Putin. And then, you know, the, the holy light was was dispersed uh, from that cathedral to all over Russia the next day on on Easter Orthodox Easter Sunday. So there, there's that side to Putin too, and also the side where he has done everything he can to promote. Uh, family values in Russia, uh, you know, under the communist regime, the birth rates had dropped dramatically, and the, the population of Russia was actually going down because, you know, people, you know, there was too much hardship. People did not want to bring into the world more than one one child, and so he instituted government programs with cash bonuses, big cash bonuses to every Russian family that would have a second child, and an even, even bigger bonus if they had a third child, et cetera. So there's that side to Putin, too, that is noteworthy.
0: It's an amazing story, Nicholas, and I think it gives us a deep reflection on the another part of the man. As you say, I mean, he is, this is a multidimensional person. And yeah. I think we forget often as well, we or don't spend time understanding, even just the, the Russian education system and the upbringing of that is much more uh, developed and to create a multidimensional person as itself, everything from classics of music to the, as he is, he's a, he's a judo master and he, he's an accomplished pianist. He speaks multiple languages. I, he
1: speaks German, he speaks German fluency. Uh, I, I'm not sure about his, um, his English, but, but yeah, he's, you know, he's a multifaceted person and you know, this, all of this isn't to say that, um, what is happening right now is, uh, you know, is uh, should be fined by us because innocent people are being killed. But what I'm trying to say is that we bear responsibility with our stupidities in foreign policy that have brought this on. What was so wrong? If the Obama administration had just let things be, had let that delicate balancing act continue that Ukraine was, had been living under for 25 years. What was so wrong with that?
0: I agree. Obama was an insurgent president designing to very specifically destabilize much of the world and and infuse conflict, which I think he's done an amazing job in his legacy of not only infusing conflict overseas, but in infusing division within this country right. never ever before.
1: And then he had the audacity to say at the end of his term that there has never been an administration that had more integrity and no scandals like his. Uh, very short memory, you know. If you begin with Fast and Furious and the fact that Eric Holder, who was then the Attorney General, was actually held in contempt of Congress. Of course, they didn't go after him as as they went after uh, uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon now. But to this day, Eric Holder is still under a contempt of Congress citation. And, and could be prosecuted. So Obama had the audacity to say that his administration was completely free of scandal. Uh, and pardon me for interrupting you, uh, Scott, but this is worth saying. I would also refer our listeners to look up, you can Google this, a legal case called Dennis Montgomery versus James B. Comey. That's the former FBI director at all. Dennis Montgomery versus James B. Comey. Who was Dennis Montgomery? He was a uh, uh, employee of the CIA and he was doing work for the director of national intelligence with a program called Hammer, which was designed to eavesdrop on the conversations of Americans. He, he became a whistleblower in 2017, early 2017. About a year later, in 2018, he turned over to the FBI 600 million pages of stolen transcripts, of transcripts of eavesdropped conversations that that had been recorded under this program. And what he disclosed was that it wasn't only Trump that was being spied on. It was also Chief Justice Roberts and listen to this, 159 federal judges. And yet and yet, Mr. Obama had the audacity to say that there has never been an administration that was so free of scandal like his. Incredible.
0: There is a piece of history that you have that I'd like you to share, Liv, and I'm aware of it, but it's not something that most people know. And it had to do with our civil war and a Russian Ship that came into the West Coast. Did you, am, I, am I correct about that?
1: Well, yeah, it's 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 bigger than that. Uh, the the point there for saying that is that the relations between the United States and Russia were always warm up until the time when communism came to Russia. Then we diverged. But a typical example of those warm relations is that during the Civil War here in America the British empire saw an opportunity to meddle again and maybe split up uh, this country, uh, which is exactly what they did to Latin America. That's why, isn't it, isn't it something to wonder about how Latin America is a myriad countries thanks to British foreign policy, but we here in the United States managed to keep North America all in one country. So when the civil war started here, the British Empire saw an opportunity to, to divide and conquer here. And the emperor of Russia at the time was Alexander II. And what he did as a signal to the British not to meddle in America is that he dispatched a large flotilla of the Russian Navy to San Francisco and another large flotilla into New York Harbor. And that was his signal to the British don't meddle in America because you're going to cause a war with me. And the result was that they did not meddle. So these are kind of forgotten instances in our history, uh, and in particular in our history uh, of uh, relations with Russia, that we should be mindful of. We had excellent relations with them until the time when communism came. And that is, by the way, why they also sold us Alaska. Does anybody think that the Russian Empire would have sold Alaska to us if we were not friendly with them?
0: It's well said. I think this is the core of where I'd like to kind of close things out today, which is how much simil- more similar than we are than different. I've You and I have had this conversation previously, which is that I truly believe that one of the greatest alliances of this time would be Russia, and the United States. Putting our governments aside, the people I see as people of common origin. We are both Christian nations. We are both very much uh, patriotic towards the countries that we have. And either country, by definition, is an expansionist country. Each country has proud histories. Each country has a strong work ethics. I'm a true believer that the Russians and the Americans can truly come together as one I'm reminded in the media frenzy uh, that we are in that and again this goes back to another quote by Mikhail Lermontov, which is he in his madness prays for storms and dreams that storms will bring him peace this is sort of the craziness in which we live in which somehow all of this chaos is normal and it we want and we feed more on it and I think that's much of that is fanned. Those emotions are, are created by the media. I don't think we're that way as people. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I agree, and I'll, I'll mention another
1: specific example to you. A good friend of mine who is uh, uh, co-authored with her husband the most famous book about Russia, which is called Nicholas and Alexandra. Uh, Suzanne Massey. Uh, and then authored a number of other books, you know, delving into Russian culture, history, the Russian psyche, et cetera. I mean, one of her books is called uh, is titled The Land of the Firebird. Uh, Suzanne Massey. well, Suzanne Massey is an American. She lives in uh, Maine, and uh, she got fascinated with Russia in the uh, in the 60s and 70s, and so she start, She began traveling to Russia, but she she practiced complete immersion. Uh, so uh, she learned Russian fluently. She mingled with people on the on the street. Uh, she could not be identified when she was on the street as a foreigner. And what do I mean by that? That um, um, uh, in those days, the, the, the Soviet days, and even during one or two years of transition after the Soviet system collapsed, a foreigner could be identified on Russian streets almost immediately by Russians just from our dress, from, from, from what we wore. Uh, it was a bad giveaway. So Suzanne Massey went completely local, and uh, she, as a result, uh, you know, really got some tremendous insights into uh, Russia and the Russians, et cetera, et cetera. So one day when uh, uh, Reagan was president, her phone rang and she told me this story herself and she picked it up and they said, uh, a woman's voice said, Mrs. Massey. And she said, yes. And and she said, this is the white house uh, calling. Would you please stand by? The president would like to talk with you. And she thought for a minute, that's a joke, but she, she kind of lingered and, uh, sure enough, president Reagan comes on the phone and he says, Mrs. Massey, I'm paraphrasing slightly. I understand that you are one of very few Americans who has experience from complete immersion in Russia, and I would very much like to meet you and talk with you. And she said, well, certainly, Mr. President. She she recognized his voice. She knew it was him. She said, certainly. And he said, well, I'm going to put my secretary on, and they'll make arrangements for you to come down to the White House, and I will look forward to meeting you. So they made the arrangements, and she goes down on the appointed day. She flew down from Maine. And she's ushered into the Oval Office. And there, sitting with Reagan, is Admiral Poindexter, who was the national security advisor at the time, and McFarlane, and two or three other people. So, uh, President Reagan, of course, he had a very gentlemanly way about him. He greets her nicely, he sits her down next to him, and they ex- exchange pleasantries for two or three minutes. And then suddenly he said, Well, that'll be all, gentlemen. Thank you. So, on cue, all of them get up and leave. Leave the room, close the doors. So now she's in the Oval Office alone with Reagan, sitting next to him. And he says, Mrs. Massey, I understand from my people that you are maybe the foremost American that understands the Russian psyche, understands the Russian people uh, because you've been traveling there for years, etc. I would like for you to please tell me answer some questions for me. And so they got into a long discussion about what your average Russian on the street is like, how he views America, uh, uh, all these kinds of questions. And through that conversation, Reagan came to understand that the man on the street in Russia and the woman on the street are very much like Americans, you know, get up by your bootstraps, you know, initiative, etc., except that they had been stifled, of course, with the, the Soviet regime. And so what happened after that initial encounter is that every time there was some kind of an important yardstick along the way, Reagan would call her and bring her down, empty the room so that nobody could interfere from the you know his foreign policy establishment, his advisors. Nobody could interfere and say to Mrs. Massey, oh, no, no, you, you don't understand this or you don't understand that. He wanted to hear everything she knew that I submit to you, Scott is a sign of a great president. And so you remind me of that story because yes, there are a lot of similarities between your average Russian on the street and your average American on the
0: street. I think that's such an important insight that gets lost in the muddle and chaos of a very deceitful media and a very, uh, Inappropriately aligned government policies that keep driving us apart and trying to drive the wedge between us for all sorts of insidious reasons.
1: But by now we've made such a mess, Scott, that that I, it makes me wonder if anything is redeemable at this
0: point or not. I'm of the belief, Nicholas, that this is redeemable, as the people can come to know each other, mm-hmm. and it's a person who spent three and a half years on the ground in Afghanistan in a pretty ugly conflict, that had years of legacy of conflict. I've broken enough bread with the common person to really believe that I think all those things are possible. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's one of those points that I find very hopeful in all of this that we can sit down and once we can get our media out of the way and get the interests, the what I would maybe refer to as the lobbyist type interests that are always consumed with the contracts for their own benefit, the contracts for a war, and get down to truly what we are, I think we have a lot of opportunity to heal and to come together. At least that's my thoughts. I hope so. Nicholas, we always close with a prayer, and with your permission, I'd like to do a prayer. Sure. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this very blessed meeting and this very powerful time we've had together, listening to Nicholas' stories and his background to try to provide some light into this very complex time and very complex issues. We are truly reminded, Lord, in Proverbs 2, that my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray for wisdom and we pray for wisdom the power of your wisdom to bless us and to continue to guide all the work that Nicholas does and to continue to open the hearts of the many that we can start hearing each other, sitting with each other, listening to each other and truly breaking bread. Guide us, protect us. And we say these things in Christ Jesus name. Amen. 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 Nicholas, absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you very much for coming on. It's a great honor. I'm very humbled and um, you're, all that you've done is, uh, is amazing, what you've accomplished, and your insights are very valuable. So, thank you. Thank you. Well, Patriots, I hope you enjoyed that interview. This is a really amazing man, Nicholas Papanikolaou. I want to read you a quote from Fyodor Dostoevsky from Crime and Punishment. And I would tell you, Russian writers are brilliant. I, I love them, they're uh, deep deeply philosophical, and I think they've got the salt of the earth in what they write. But he writes this. It's one of his great quotes. You know what irks me the most? Not that they're lying. Lying can always be forgiven. Lying is a fine thing because it leads to the truth. No, what irks me is that they lie and and then worship their lies. So much truth in that. Our leaderships around the world not only lie, but they worship their lies. And they continue to pride themselves in the ability to twist truth and keep people away from truth. That has to end. And the only way that's going to end is if we reach out and continue to find ways to communicate with each other. Not through the filter of media, not through the bias of media. I've the Ukraine issue here has quite frankly, it disappointed me a great deal in the gullibility of a large percentage of the American public. Gullible nice. Stupidity and ignorance is probably at the top of the two words I would use because it's pretty obvious that people are getting played. We have bombed more countries into submission, and the minute that Russia makes one incursion, suddenly we become the white knights and the heroes. We have to quit fooling ourselves. There is a serious problem in this nation. It's a problem of child sex trafficking, of pedophilia. It's an exportation of using for those mechanisms and drugs of how we have been playing the world and calling ourselves the land of the free. We have great people here. We have great documents that founded our nation. And those are the things that we have to fight for because we have to be proud, as Russians are proud, as others are proud of being countrymen of their country. But our politicians don't represent us. And our despicable government doesn't represent us. That same government that's building bioweapons labs in Ukraine. I don't care what their reasoning are. There's no justification for that. Because all you're doing is escalating war. So it's time that we as the people start to reach a point where we will not accept their garbage. And that means also we have to get to a place where we're not going to tolerate their empty promises and their, and their spinning of all the truths. Politicians are politicians. And that means we don't trust them, should not trust them, and should not want them leading us. It's pretty simple. So this is the challenges we have ahead, and it's a a paradigm shift that we have to move away from, and we have to get to that place of what really brings truth to us, and we have to get to the place of resetting this nation with those that truly represent the interests of the people, not the interests of the manipulated people that are manipulated by the big corporations and media. So patriots, I'll be back this evening for Fishers of Men. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. Prayers for wisdom would be good. Prayers for common sense would be good. Prayers for reaching out to Father to get that wisdom even better. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place for such a time as this. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom, mission forward. Have a very blessed evening. I'll see you tonight for Fishers of Men until then or until the next time. God bless and out for now.
3: We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe